Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for reminding us of the gospel that is the righteousness of God. It's by faith, from faith to faith, that we live in this reality that is the anchor of our soul. For the righteous man shall live by faith. We are so grateful and thankful for your Son's work, our Lord and Savior on the cross, to make all this a reality, even this evening. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, fantastic set of principles uh, we've been learning. This is part 17. Uh, I don't know, I, don't, I never really know how long he's going to take a certain series, um, but we are, I think, getting somewhat close. It depends on how much the Spirit wants to say on sanctification proper. Uh, he may hold that off um, a little bit. I do want to begin by uh, correcting something from Sunday um, on this right here. This individual, I had Bruce Metzger, who's another theologian, uh, I had quoted, uh, it was actually quoting Will Metzger. So his, this was his quote again from Sunday. Regeneration and conversion are words to describe two different ways of viewing salvation. Regeneration is viewing salvation from God's side. It is an instantaneous impartation of new life to the soul. We may or may not be conscious of the exact moment this happened to us. Will Metzger continues, Conversion, on the other hand, is viewing salvation from from our perspective. It is a process of the entire work of God's grace from the first dawning of understanding and seeking to the final closing with Christ in new birth. For some, this is a period of years. For others, merely an hour. We respond in time to God's action in eternity. And that's a nice way to sort of carve out uh, what the Spirit's been saying as of late from this pulpit. Uh, It should clarify some things nicely for you. Uh, If not, this evening's message is really fantastic in continuing that work from Sunday. On Sunday, we did begin with a remnant from, I think it was last Thursday, and it was had to do with some of the things that I had discussed uh, last week. Relative to doubting salvation, uh, a believer may at times be tempted to doubt their own salvation. However, a true believer will seek him for answers and find him every time, as well as their assurance. And so, um, firstly, again, I'd like to ensure that you all, you all fully understand what the Spirit was trying to convey to you um, up here on the board. <clears throat> There's really no goodness in doubting. Okay? There's really no cause for it even other than temptation um, because God's not going to tempt you. So there's really no goodness in doubting. Rather, the goodness is in the exercise that follows, namely self-examination and biblical seeking. That's the goodness that um, we started off with on Sunday morning. Again, there's really no goodness in doubting Strictly speaking, rather, the goodness is in the exercise that follows, which is self-examination and biblical seeking. For example, Romans 8.28, go there. 
Romans 8.28. That's really what I was trying to say on Sunday morning. I wanted to make sure that everybody was clear on that. Romans 8.28. It's always a good thing. Uh, Even when you are tempted to do something like doubt, uh, if you are truly a believer, you're going to do that thing uh, in seeking Him, and seeking answers, and going to Scripture, and ferreting it out. And when you do that thing, you will find Him every time. And you will find your answers, and you will be assured. So in that sense, God can turn something uh, not so good into something good. Romans 8.28 helps us with that conclusion. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That means even the times when you're doubting. He can take that time and make the most of it by getting you back to Scripture, looking for answers, looking for a sense of reassurance. And that's a very good thing, because as you're pedaling along in the Scriptures, as you're going about that thing, the Word's washing over you, you see? It's not only washing away the doubt, it's also... Um, filling up your cup, if you would, in many ways. <clears throat> so, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. What's interesting about this particular passage, too, is that it contains many forensic, and I hope you understand what I mean when I use that word forensic. I'm using it in the judicial sense. It's a judicial term. Uh, forensic details, this passage as we continue, as we'll see, it contains many forensic or judicial details about salvation. Not that they are necessarily presented as part of the gospel, though they are certainly elements of what happens at salvation. And I want to use the boat analogy that I had uh, briefly mentioned on Sunday Um, to expand on this. And I'll just give you what I gave you on Sunday. Suppose it takes me, I don't know, a couple of years to build a boat. As my neighbor, you've watched me build it from the ground up, so you know the facts, and you know the builder. A tsunami comes, and I tell you to jump into the boat and be saved. So reflecting on that for a moment, Think about if that was you, for real. You look at the character and the integrity of the builder even more than the boat. Why? Because you'd be putting your trust in his workmanship. After all, you aren't exactly privy to all the details and the labor that went into building it, unless you're a really creepy neighbor, I suppose. <laughs> but let's suppose you're not a creep. Okay? Just for the sake of, you know, for some of you like, ah, oh, man, another out-of-body experience. You aren't exactly privy to all the details and the labor that went into building it. You also know that a boat can look seaworthy, but leak like crazy. So your faith must actually be in the person who's telling you to get into the boat. If you don't trust, and that's our key word this evening, if you don't trust the person, you won't trust the good news concerning the boat. 
simply trusting the facts that a boat was built and that you can attest to its, to its existence is not what is going to motivate you to get into the boat and be saved. Only trust in the person and his work will do that. Okay? Only trust in the person and his work will do that. It's the same with the gospel. Jesus Christ, the builder in the story, says to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14.6 That is analogous to the invitation to get into the boat and be saved. He also says, while, now this is where the timing comes in, he also says, while you're still standing there, prior to the tsunami, and you might think of that as final judgment, theologically, while you're still standing there, prior to the tsunami, things to encourage you to make the right decision. Go to Mark 8.34. So while you're standing there outside the boat, you know a judgment's coming, you know a tsunami's coming, he gives you things to think about so that you make the right decision. He doesn't want to trick you into the boat, but he also doesn't want to give you, so he doesn't want to give you a false hope. Uh, He doesn't want to do anything but give you the right information about salvation, about what it means to get into the boat so that you can make the right decision. Look at Mark 8.34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Remember the Greek word from Sunday, thelo. It implied a free will decision. So he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And what do you see there? You see a lot of ands. You see a lot of what I'll call connective tissue. In other words, there's a bunch of terms and conditions. Think of it that way. And all terms and conditions have to be satisfied for you to get into the boat. Sound fair? Okay. So he presents this this way. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When he says things like this, he is revealing the whole picture of the gospel truth. And he's alluding to all of the grace works he is willing to perform in you if if your heart is humble enough to receive it. In other words, he just says, These are the terms and conditions. Here's the good news. If you leave that behind and jump in the boat, you're saved. Here's all of the good news. Fair statement? So that's the way he presents it to us. So he says things like this, revealing the whole picture of the gospel truth, and he's alluding to all of the grace works that he is willing to perform in you if your heart is humble enough to receive it. In other passages, he says similar things to groups of people who weren't in the boat yet, necessarily. Go to Luke 14.25. Luke 14.25. 
So you have to think of the gospel this way. For God's justice to be satisfied, you have to understand all the terms and conditions of the gospel truth. What it means to get in the boat. You have to understand all that. He wants you to understand all of those terms and conditions before you make a decision. And the terms of condition are things like, hey, listen, if you want to follow me, you can't do both. You have to leave yourself behind. I'm going to give you a cross. These things are going to happen. I want you to understand all that. I want you to count the costs, so to speak. I want you to look at all this. And then when I see that your heart understands the whole picture of the gospel truth, then I will, and you're open to it, and humble towards it, and ready to receive it, I will quicken believing, faith, repentance. I'll give you all of that so that it happens. But he wants you to have all that data up front. And that's why we as evangelists can't rob anyone of all the data. Otherwise, we'd be kind of tricking them into the boat, right? They'd get in the boat and say, hey, where'd this cross come from? Luke 14.25, let's continue. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own, see the word and again, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I gave you, that's a relative statement, hate, I gave you that. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you see, he says these things in pairs very often. He says the whole thing, so to speak. He presents both sides, what it means to get in the boat, so to speak. The scene in the analogy is that Christ is standing in the boat that he's built from eternity past. The, quote, good news, a.k.a. the gospel, is that there is a boat and the builder is trustworthy. But what he's saying to those he is evangelizing is that you cannot be simultaneously in the boat and out of the boat. That's what he's saying. You can't be simultaneously in the boat and out of it. So he presents that as fact. This is the gospel. You can't be in and out of the boat, which means you have to deny yourself to get in the boat. Now, we'll talk about who does that good work later, because I don't want anybody to walk away from here this evening thinking that this is about works, because it's not. So he's saying to those he's evangelizing that you cannot be simultaneously in the boat and out of it. In other words, if you choose to jump into the boat with Christ, then you undoubtedly must leave the self-life, the old life, your worldly attachments, etc., behind. And he's being honest and upfront. And as soon as you get into the boat, he hands you a cross to carry. Those are the conditions of the gospel. And he doesn't want to lie to you. And he's not trying to trick you. He says, these are the conditions. We ought to remember his approach by sharing the conditions, all of them, with folks still not in the boat. This is what the Spirit's been getting at now for two months. 
Jesus says, in fairness to his own integrity in salvation, count the cost. Count the cost. What he's really saying is simply that a person must consider in their heart all of the conditions of the gospel. Starting with, the good news is that you are a sinner and it is impossible for you to survive in your sins. You'll drown. That's part of the good news. At this point, the humble crowd responds, Thank you. I realize I couldn't tread water forever. This is good news that I don't have to rely on my own abilities. The arrogant crowd responds, No thank you. I think I can find a better solution, even if I have to rely on my own abilities. Again, Jesus Christ says, The good news is that you are a sinner and it is impossible for you to survive in your sins, you'll drown. He also states in the same breath the other condition of the gospel. The good news is also that I am the builder of this here boat. You might even say I am the author and perfecter of it. Trust me, it is seaworthy and able to save you from certain death. And after he says these two simple things, typically found in co-conditions in Scripture, we just saw a couple of passages. After he says these two simple things, typically found as co-conditions in Scripture, he steps back and says, well, there you have it, choose well. In other words, the full conditions of the gospel before a person is even able to get into the boat Jesus places the full gospel before them and says do you accept my terms here are the terms and conditions of getting in the boat I just gave them to you do you accept my terms the humble person says yes yes Lord thank you The arrogant person says, no thank you, or possibly gets a little more creative, saying, well, let me cross out this line item, the one that kind of says, deny self, and then we have a deal. In other words, I want to alter the conditions of the gospel. Jesus responds, you either accept all the terms of my gospel or none of them. And that's the way it is. So, in essence, Jesus Christ presents the gospel in full when he says co-conditional things like, deny self, follow me. That's the whole gospel. He wants you to understand what that means. He wants your heart to be right with it, which is why a little kid can't understand those things. little kid doesn't understand what it means to be depraved. He wants you to understand the whole picture. What it means to deny self and follow me. For that is what it takes to get into the boat and be saved. This is what it means to 
count the cost. It means that a heart must be presented with the fullness of the gospel so that it can make a decision that satisfies God's integrity. He doesn't want anybody trying to jump in the boat when they don't understand the whole gospel. It means that a heart must be presented with the fullness of the gospel so that it can make a decision that satisfies God's integrity. This is why Jesus adds what he does in this passage. You just have to keep reading. Look at Luke 14, 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. All he's saying is, I want you to understand all the terms and conditions of the gospel, all of them, and then I want your heart to make a decision. And that's just a flat-out issue of humility versus arrogance. Again, the point on the board, counting the cost, it means that a heart must be presented with the fullness of the gospel so that it can make a decision that satisfies God's integrity. Up here on the board, Jesus was saying, trust me, the terms and conditions of the gospel, for lack of a better term, contract, are both fair and doable. God's honest truth. So don't worry about how it's going to get done. Do you trust me to get it done? Do you trust me to save you? So he was saying, trust me, the terms and conditions of the gospel contract are both fair and doable. God's honest truth. So getting back to the basics then, what we really see here is that it is the human heart that must be humble enough to receive all terms and conditions of the gospel. We might call that the heart issue of the gospel. Facts are never enough. You can say, oh yeah, that's a boat. I know the boat, I know the builder. That's not enough. We must trust the architect of our salvation. The author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2, that his good work is sufficient to save us if we even think that we need saving, a.k.a. if we possess a repentant heart even. Now, just one more issue that seems to have come across some of your minds on this, and it has to do with works. And I take this very seriously. It has to do with works. Some have expressed that repenting and denying self and hating father or mother, etc., before one is saved seems like an impossibility. Well, first of all, if you preclude God the Holy Spirit's ministry in your thought process, then you rightly ought to be confused on the topic. If you preclude the Holy Spirit's ministry in your thought process, then you rightly ought to be confused on the topic. 
But as we've noted in Scripture in the past, all aspects of salvation are given by the grace of God. Heck, even believing, if you want to get right down to it, is a grace gift. How do we know that? Scripture. Scripture, which reconciles perfectly with what I've just taught. For by grace, remember James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Any work. You can't stake a claim to any work without God's hand in it. Doesn't mean you're not there, as we're going to see. Doesn't mean you can't say, I was a doer, I was there, we were there, we made a decision, we believed, we had faith. Because those are actually true. But you've got to understand where that synergy is coming from. Without the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in that supernatural nest, however you'd like to look at it, you didn't believe, you didn't repent, you didn't have faith. So I think people get a little gun-shy, too, when they hear words, activity words, that include, that are preceded by we or I or do or these kinds of things. You shouldn't be afraid you should just understand that God the Holy Spirit is right there with you. So you read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Where does that leave man? I mean, if God does all the work in saving us, what do we do? What do we do? Go to Acts 16.30. I'm going to show you something. Acts 16.30. If God does all the work in saving us, which we know to be true, then what is it that we do? And is it even okay? Is it okay to say that we do anything? Acts 16.30, let's start there. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, We haven't seen the nitty-gritty about how he's going to do that, but we see the answer. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, who gives even the power to believe, if it's true belief? God, the Holy Spirit. Is this person still the doer of it? Yeah. Who's the power of it? God. The paradox is the same one that exists in passages already noted where man is called to do a certain activity like deny self or carry their cross, etc., etc. Are those not activities? Did Jesus Christ himself say that you would have to do these things? Did he not say it? Of course he said it. So then what's the... What's the deal here? There seems to be a bit of a paradox, but there really isn't. So the paradox here is the same one that exists in passages already noted, where man is called to do a certain activity like deny self or carry their cross, etc. The key to unlocking the Holy Scriptures is to recognize that God's power is given through the Holy Spirit 
so that we can do these things. Are you still the instrument that's doing these things? Yes, you are. Why does anybody have a problem with that? Why does anybody have a problem with that? I have no idea. As long as you understand that God the Holy Spirit is right there with you, empowering that activity. But you, my friend, are the instrument. And it was your humble heart that afforded him the opportunity to pour out grace to you so that you would have the power to do these things. So there's really not a paradox. It's just people drive me mad. And they like to hang on words. Oh, don't you say that. Don't you say that this person denied themselves. What do you want me to do? Just put a little disclaimer in there? Okay, they denied themselves with the power of the Holy Spirit. They picked up their cross by the, with the power of the Holy Spirit. You want me to keep saying it, or do you just want to get an agreement in our communication? So there's really no paradox. The paradox only exists because people are not synthesizing correctly. People, I believe from certain backgrounds, are actually what I would call gun-shy with regards to works. I mean, it's healthy that you don't get into a works program or teach it or anything like that, but it's certainly not what's coming from this pulpit. The key to unlocking the Holy Scriptures is to recognize that God's power is given through the Holy Spirit so that we can do these things. And we shouldn't be gun-shy about saying we in the sentence because it really is us that do it. It really is us that do it, just not by our own power. Then what's the problem? Are we still the people doing these things, you know, believing, denying, having faith. You bet. Okay, what's, Rome, what's, the, what's the second half of Romans 1.17 say? Does anybody remember that? From faith to faith, the righteous, I prayed on it, the righteous man shall live by what? By faith. How's that work then? Is it not the righteous man in view? Paul didn't know this, obviously. He had to give everybody a disclaimer. The righteous man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, shall live by faith. So we are still the people doing these things, believing, denying, having faith. There exists a supernatural ability for God to empower a person by grace to do any good work, whether it's salvation or beyond. And that's, the, that's as good as I can give you. How am I supposed to describe it any further than that? All I know is what the Scripture says. These are supernatural facts, folks. So there exists a supernatural ability for God to empower a person by grace to do any good work whether it's salvation or beyond, are we the ones doing it? Indeed we are. Yeah. Indeed we are. 
But just because Jesus and others use the language, you must do this or that, doesn't mean that what we are doing isn't energized by God the Holy Spirit. We know that God's never going to ask us to do anything unless He gives us the grace first to do it. He's not going to say, deny yourself, pick up your cross, hate your mother and father, unless He gives you the power to do it. But if you understand the way that Jesus Christ presented the gospel in context, instead of trying to hyperdoctrinalize everything, in context, he says, these are the terms and conditions. If you have a humble heart and you receive them, I'll give you everything so that you can complete them all. You see? So there's no paradox, folks. If you understand the basics and the context of Scripture, you won't be confused. So please don't let any of that bother you up here in the board. You and Grace. If your heart is right, then God will give you the appropriate abilities to do whatever He's asking you to do. If your heart is right, God gives grace to who? If your heart is humble, if it's right before Him, and God sees the heart, He'll give you the appropriate. Who gives measures of faith? God does. He'll give you every ability He'll ever ask you to do, to fulfill. He'll give you the ability to do it. So what's your role? Your heart, your humility. What have I been saying for six years? What's the key to the spiritual life? Humility. That's as good as it gets. But here's the beautiful thing. With humility, you can also say, in humility, there's no sacrifice, there's no putting aside of humility when you say, you know what? I did that. We did that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not claiming a work. I know whose power is behind all this. His is. But you know what? We're vessels. Prepared beforehand for what? Glory. We're elected as what? Individuals. He saved individuals and says, I'm going to do amazing things with you, Melissa, you, well, maybe not Bill, Scott. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm going to do amazing things with each one of you, and you're going to do things you could never dream you were going to be able to do because I'm going to give you the power to do it. I'm going to let you love that neighbor, ooh. You're going to love that awful neighbor. Do you love? Yes, you do. Oh, what, are we in a works program now? No, we're not. You do lots and lots of things by the power of the Spirit. You believed by the power of the Spirit. You denied yourself when you got in the boat. So if your heart is right, then God will give you the appropriate abilities to do whatever He's asking you to do. Now, back to the conditions of the Gospel and this subtle issue that has been brought to my attention regarding a fear of preaching a salvation by works Gospel. May it never be. The final loose end to all of this is what I taught on Sunday 
and continue to teach this evening. It's just a matter of perspective, so concentrate. And let me close out the boat analogy in order to pull all this together. And I would, I would encourage everyone here to re-listen to this message again. The gospel analogy, using the boat analogy, Jesus Christ the builder says, you're going to drown in your sins unless you get into the boat and leave everything behind. Trust me. I built the boat myself. It is seaworthy and able to save you. Trust me. My spirit will pull you into the boat with me. Don't worry about how. Trust me. Okay? These are the terms and conditions. Do you trust me or not? The humble person says, yes, yes, Lord. The arrogant person says, no. I don't trust you. I trust me more. Jesus Christ, the builder, says, you're going to drown in your sins unless you get into the boat and leave everything behind. Trust me. I built the boat myself that is seaworthy and able to save you. Trust me. My spirit will pull you into the boat with me. Don't worry about how. Trust me. Okay? So to net out the gospel, we ought not be overemphasizing the mechanics An unbeliever can learn about that stuff after they are saved. Rather, we ought to be emphasizing what Jesus himself emphasized, trusting in him. You and grace. If, when presented with the gospel, we accept the terms and conditions of it with humble hearts, God will quicken and empower us to believe Repent and have saving faith. Again, this is what grace is, folks. If, when presented with the gospel, we accept the terms and conditions of it with humble hearts, God will quicken and empower us to believe, repent, and have saving faith. I believe people are so hypersensitive, and I do understand it, trust me, I went through all of this myself. I believe that people are so hypersensitive to works that they've painted themselves into a corner by attempting to separate the person from the spirit. They've tried to cleave something supernatural. And the way that you do that is with false doctrines that slip in there and start making distinctions, let's call them, that aren't actually in Scripture. And all it does is lead people to places of confusion about the thing that matters the most, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I believe people are so hypersensitive to works that they've painted themselves into a corner by attempting to separate the person from the Spirit. Who is able, I ask, except God, to describe the supernatural aspects of salvation. I mean, start at the cross, you'll get stuck there. Try to write one paragraph or a paper, or a hundred-page paper, on everything that happened at the cross, you arrogant person. 
There's just some supernatural activities that happen that we have to accept. So who is able to accept or to accept God to describe the supernatural aspects of salvation? That is to say that the supernatural fusion between man and spirit at salvation, especially when Jesus and others say, do this or else, gives some people fits because they cannot grab hold of it with their control issues. What I have noted is that folks make more out of this than what it is in their paranoia towards works. Did James, think about James, did James skirt works? Not at all. Just read his, or read the epistle after his name. James had no problem saying there's going to be works. Matter of fact, he said, without works, your faith is dead. Your faith. You and Grace, it's true. A person really does do works at salvation and afterwards. Who believed? You did. Who repented? You did. Who had faith? You did. Who gave it to you? He did. (laughs) But you're the one who had those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's how simple it is. That's called grace. See, people want to get in there and and overanalyze and and get everybody confused and insecure. It's true, a person really does do works at salvation and afterwards. The simple key is to understand the existence of God's power in those activities. So again, it's, it's true. A person really does do works. Just like at salvation, a person does believe and does repent and does have faith and does deny self and does carry their cross and does, you get the point. Is it you that does all those things? Of course it is. Was it not Paul who endured beatings and almost death? Of course it was. And what did he remember when he asked, when he screamed, take this thorn out of my side like three times? What did he say? Oh, yeah, I remember. Your grace is sufficient. Oh, yeah. But did the thorn hurt? Yeah. Did Paul as a person get through it? Yeah. So I guess Paul actually did it. Amen? Amen. What's everybody's problem then? Well, you see. Shut up. Shut up. I'm tired of it. You and your paranoia. Honestly, people are so paranoid that you can't even use the word I or we or anything. Oh, well, you said we, so that means you just works. You think you're doing it. I have to really put a disclaimer in. We'll get back to the boat analogy one last time before we close, but before we do, just a couple of things to think about. The first four books in the New Testament are called what? The Gospels. Why? Because they actually contain the Gospel truth. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? Yeah, they're called the Gospels because they contain the Gospel. So what about the Epistles? Don't they contain Gospel truth as well? Indeed they do. 
and it is perfectly complementary. Perfectly measured, perfect everything to the Gospels and the Gospel that we discover first in the first four books of the New Testament. Some get confused at this point because the forensic details contained in the epistles, for example, Romans, are quite involved, often very granular and sometimes confusing even. It's true. But to use the boat analogy, a lot of those details, focus, concentrate, to use the boat analogy, a lot of those details are in the Word of God for two basic reasons. And I'm not going to oversimplify, so don't get crazy with me. They're there. All those details are there for two basic reasons. Either build the confidence or the sense of assurance of those already in the boat, or defend the boat against those on the outside, mocking it and those who have placed their faith in the builder. It's one of those two things, typically. That's the epistles. Either building someone up, like Ephesians mostly did, or defending, like, who knows, Colossians, or you name it, First John, James, whatever. In a nutshell, that is what the epistles are. They are most often addressing one of these two issues, if not both simultaneously. But when it comes to presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to an unbeliever, many of these details aren't required for salvation. For example, I'm not going to argue with an unbeliever about predestination. Even though Paul speaks about it in the book of Romans. I'm not going to argue with an unbeliever about the Spirit's ministry in this world either. Consider 1 Corinthians 2.14, they're spiritually appraised things. I'm not going to argue those things. But, 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 but the Spirit was there at salvation. Yes, He was, but you didn't need to know that. You needed to know whether or not you need a Savior. You know, most likely, you know anything about God, the Holy Spirit's ministry at salvation. These are the types of details that will either build up believers or defend the gospel against false teachers and false doctrines that twist Scripture into knots. But you see, these are different issues contextually, and that's the key, always. They fit wonderfully with the four Gospels, just like this. Wonderful. But they all have context, and that's what everybody seems to forget. They want to jump over there, and then over there, and then over there, and then over there, and then say they put a quilt together, and they call that the Gospel. These are different issues contextually than the ones that are essential to the gospel that Jesus himself presented. In other words, in the boat analogy, the epistles are like Jesus saying to those in the boat, you see these nails right here holding the wood together? They are wonderfully made and eternally strong. Well, that encourages people in the boat, doesn't it? He might even point out some of the nuances of the boat. See, nice 
round head, you know, it's like iron clasp. Ooh, I use this hammer to put it in there. You're like, yeah, Jesus. So you're encouraged, right? But you didn't need to know all that before you got in the boat. You learn this stuff after you're in the boat. And those are the wonders of God. So he says, you see these nails right here? They're wonderfully made and eternally strong. He says, you see that wood right there? It's perfect for constructing a boat. These are the types of, quote, conversations that we believers get to have when we read our Bibles and the Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus promised He would. He's ministering to us, always reminding us of the things we've learned, especially that God's grace is sufficient to deliver us from all problems, 2 Corinthians 12.9. The epistles are also very often, remember context is key, the epistles are also very often addressing that second case, though, which is defending the gospel from those antagonizers outside the boat. So on the inside, Jesus is pointing out all the virtues of being in the boat so that your sense of assurance, your sense of gladness, your sense of peace are what? Amplified. But then there's still these folks on the outside, the antagonizers. They are the ones who are pointing at the nails they see on the boat and saying, those are inferior nails. I have better ones in my possession. Be wary. Kind of scary when you're in a boat. Think about it. And someone in another boat comes up and says, you better pay attention to those nails because they're about ready to pop. And you're out five miles out at sea, right? Little doubt. Little doubt. And they might say, that wood that your builder used, well, that's inferior too. And eventually it will fail, and the boat will leak, and you all will perish. When any good shepherd hears of such things, they go into defensive mode. You know, the wolves. They go into defensive mode. Rather than allowing false accusations to go unchecked, a good shepherd will often counter such attacks with truth about the gospel. This is what we see in the epistles, which is why context is imperative. We see this either sense of assurance being built up or a sense of a defense against false teachers, false doctrines, people outside the boat. That's really what the epistles are doing, folks. Are the artifacts there that amplify the gospel? You bet. The gospels and the epistles complement each other perfectly, but only if you have the context right in your soul when you read them. If you really want to have your minds blown, then you also begin reading the Old Testament with the proper perspective, and you see how perfectly it too fits into the terms and conditions of the gospel truth. That's when it really starts blowing your mind. For example, what do you see now that you read the following verse? Go to Deuteronomy 30, 19. Even 
even with just tonight's message or this past couple of months under your belt, what do you see now when you read Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20? Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. You know what I see? I see the gospel. I see a God that is able to and desires to save. I see the very same thing when I read, go to 1 Timothy 2.3. I see the same heart of God. I see the same gospel, if you would. The same good news. First Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, choose life, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, and the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, I see the gospel. I see the same thing. I see the same Lord God I saw in Deuteronomy. And that, my friends, is very encouraging. Up here on the board. So you see, once you have the gospel rightly situated in your soul, the entire Bible explodes into full view. But you've got to have that one. It's from faith to faith. You've got to have the gospel right in your soul. And once you do and you carry it with you, the entire Bible explodes into full view. It's magnificent. Once you understand how simple God's salvation is, and you drop your control issues, and you trust in the Lord God, all is peaceful and well in your soul. It's simple. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be humble. Because <laughs> that's who God gives grace to. Go to 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. That is the key, my friends, humility. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You know that Paul understood it. Up here on the board, the gospel reality. Jesus Christ is the builder and the captain of the USS Salvation. 
He trained up his disciples, beginning with his apostles, to defend the ship. And when not doing that, to extol the virtues of it to those inside. That's what you see, folks, with the apostles, with the epistles. That is exactly what you see. He trained up his apostles. He says, I want you to go out now. I want you to fan out. I want you to, that's the Great Commission. I want you to train up more disciples. I want you to teach them about the gospel. And a bunch of people started jumping in the boat. Once they were in the boat, they're like, isn't this fantastic? Isn't this wonderful? Romans 1.12, your faith and mine, we're encouraged by each other. We gather together. Heck, he even gave us local assemblies so that we can encourage each other for as long as it's today. Do what? Encourage one another. Isn't this awesome? This is great. Look at the nails. Look at this nail. Seriously, you look at the nail. Like, oh, my God, it just blew my mind. It's unbelievable. Look at the wood. Look at the woodwork. It's unbelievable. It's magnificent. We're in this boat. We get to go to heaven. This is amazing. Oh, here comes another one. Incoming. Shoo. From the outside. Doubts, doubts, flaming arrows, doubts, doubts. Jesus Christ is the builder and the captain of the USS Salvation. He trained up his disciples, beginning with his apostles, to defend the ship. And when not doing that, to extol the virtues of it to those inside. Let's close with Luke 5.30. Luke 5.30. Might as well close with the Lord himself. Luke 5.30. Again, I encourage you, listen to this message again. Luke 5.30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The great call. That's the gospel. Here are the terms and conditions. You've been called to understand them. Here are the terms and conditions of the gospel. That's the call. The only thing you have in that is humility. Amen? Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together this way as family this evening so that we can study your word and then take it out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. Thank you for equipping us with the gospel of truth. We ask for blessings, traveling mercies on those as we depart. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.